0: If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, John, and chapter 20. We will not be just in John 20. We'll be in a a few different places, but if you wanted to turn to one spot and stay there, uh, John 20 would be a good place to go. Um, I'll reference some other scriptures. You're welcome to turn there, or you're welcome just to stay here. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, who you may know from the Chronicles of Narnia books, C.S. Lewis famously wrote these words. You may have heard them before. He said, I'm trying here, in this book, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus stands in history as the most pivotal figure ever. And in one way or another, everyone in the world is forced to answer the question, Who was Or, as we would emphasize on Easter morning, who is Jesus? What Lewis argues is that there's basically three options. One, he was a liar, meaning that he made up everything that he said. The second is that he was a lunatic. So he was, out of of his mind, he believed things about himself that were not true, and that's what he said. Or he was who he said he was. He was Lord. Liar, lunatic, or Lord? These are our only options as we seek to answer this question in our own hearts, Who is Jesus? Of course, as we seek to answer that question, the place that we come to is to the Scriptures. These are the the sources from which we make this decision about who we think Jesus is. We enter into the pages of Scripture. We enter especially into the New Testament. And even within the New Testament, we enter specifically into the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And we begin to gather evidence from what, and we gather all this evidence and try to make the decision of what are we going to do with this man, Jesus. If we do that, if, if we consider what's written about Jesus in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, slowly some things come to the surface. If you read those Gospels, even just one of them, you'll start to see certain things. We'll think about the way that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies or how he seems to have had power over demons and and disease and even death itself. We'll hear testimonies of people around him, and we'll get a picture of of what he was like and, and who he claimed to be. And as we gather all this information, we'll eventually come to the end of his life, which the Gospel writers make a big deal about, and we'll watch him as he's crucified and buried, and then we will stand in front of the tomb on the first Easter, the first resurrection Sunday, and we'll see Jesus emerge from the tomb three days after his death, alive and well. And depending on how you read all of that, and depending on how the Spirit of God is working in each of our hearts, we are going to answer the question, who is Jesus, by either saying, well, I read it all, and he's a liar. Or I read it all, and he's a lunatic. Or we'll come to the place of saying, he is the Lord, and not just the Lord, he is my life so with this question of who is jesus in our minds i want us to think on this truth it's that the resurrection is the final word on who jesus is not the only word but the final word the resurrection is the final definitive word on who jesus is as we consider the, the life of Jesus, it's the resurrection that is the final act that, that tips the ca- the scales, as it were, to us, for us to see Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's not to say that everything else that we read about Jesus is insignificant or to, or to negate anything else that there is about him. But what I mean is that the resurrection sort of stands as the final piece of the puzzle that makes sense of who... Jesus was, that, that shows that he wasn't a liar, and shows that he wasn't crazy, but that he was exactly who he said he was. The incarnation, the fact that Jesus was born as God in human form is what makes the resurrection possible, but the resurrection in some sense shows us that what we believe about the baby in Bethlehem is actually true, that he was God, and we know that because he rose from the dead. And the quest to answer this question, who is Jesus? The resurrection is the final word on who he is. Now, as we think about this idea that the resurrection is the final word on who Jesus is, I want us to, to just briefly and very quickly walk through the life of, of Simon Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and to see how the resurrection for Peter became the final word about him coming to see who Jesus was. Even for Peter... Peter who saw so much of what Jesus did firsthand was was there. It was the, the resurrection that finally cemented the fact that Jesus truly was both Lord and Christ, both the, the King over all and the Savior of the world. I love Peter's story because Peter's story is a, it's a story of the ups and downs of, of the life of, of faith, which means it's a story like yours and like mine. Peter gives us all hope, <laughs> because however good we look in our Easter outfits, we're all a total mess left on our own. As I thought about that, I was reminded of a character in Wendell Berry's uh, short stories. Uh, it's a guy named Potomi Proudfoot. Uh, my kids love Pole and his wife, Miss Minnie, who is the town school teacher. Listen to this description of of pole Maybe you'll understand why my kids like him. It says of Toll, when he left the house to load his stock, he would be as clean and neat as Miss Minnie's repeated instructions and inspections could make him. He would be washed and shaved and combed, dressed in his best everyday clothes, which would be spotless, as stiff with starch as if made of tin. By the time the stock were loaded, all the creases would be crisscrossed with wrinkles. There would be mud and manure on his shoes and breeches, and maybe on his shirt. He would have a loose cuff or suspender after much head scratching, his, his cap or hat would be on crooked, and some stray swatch of hair would be hanging in his eyes or sticking out over one ear. <laughs> Whether we keep it together on the outside or not, this is how we all are inside, apart from God's grace. And such was Peter. He was a man who, like many of us, had trouble getting it together. <laughs> uh, he had moments of brilliance that were often quickly followed by moments of great weakness, and in fact we could say great stupidity. Uh, sometimes he said the, the right thing that no one else was willing to say, and sometimes he said the wrong thing that no one even else thought about saying. <laughs> and yet Jesus was always so full of grace and truth with Peter, in every single moment. <laughs> and Peter never found perfection in this life, but, but the footing of his faith became firm. And I think it found its final foundation in the truth that Jesus, who was dead, is alive forevermore. We're all very much like Peter, and whether you have been a Christian for years, or today you're asking for the first time the question, who is Jesus? We can all learn from his journey and from what the resurrection finally meant to him. We meet Peter first through his brother. So John's Gospel opens in John chapter 1 with John the Baptist coming and preaching in the wilderness, calling people to repentance. When people assume that John the Baptist is the Messiah, uh, that he's the the rescuer that Israel is waiting for, he's very clear and says, I'm not him. But rather he says that he's the one that's preparing the way. And in the midst of this preparation of the way, um, John comes to see that Jesus, who in fact is a relative of his on his mother's side, Uh, is not just his cousin, but is in fact the promised one, that he is the Messiah. John proclaims that he is the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. What a wonderful statement. Two of John the Baptist's early followers were John and Andrew, and they catch what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus. And so they approach Jesus Not really sure know what to say, it seems like, and they say, where are you staying? Jesus says, come here, and I'll show you. And then John 1, verses 40 and 41, it says this about Andrew. It says, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. As best I can tell, this seems to be the first time that Jesus laid eyes on Peter and the first time that Peter laid eyes on Jesus. Though there's actually another early encounter between them in the Gospels that we're gonna look at. But this makes me wonder, because we don't we see that later encounter, it makes me wonder if, if Peter early on here may not have been as as convinced as John and Andrew that Jesus was the Messiah. He sort of likes his new nickname, but he's he's not ready to follow Jesus. Like his brother is. Uh, Maybe, maybe you're like Peter. You've, you've heard about Jesus from someone, uh, someone who's fully convinced that he's the Savior of the world. Um, and they're, they're full of zeal. They're, they're excited about following Christ. And you respect that passion. But, but you're just, you're just not convinced yet. You've got some more questions, some reservations. So you're going to wait and see. Like, I think what Peter's doing here. But then there's this second early encounter between Jesus and Peter, and it happens one day on the banks of the, the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you remember this story. that The crowd is seeking to hear Jesus preach, and the crowd gets so big that, that Jesus goes to Peter, gets into his boat, and says, Can you set out from the water a little bit? Because the crowd's getting so big. We'll go out into the water, and I'll preach from the boat, and that way I don't get crushed by this crowd. And, and Peter agrees. Um, and after Jesus is finished... Luke tells us this. This is in Luke 5, beginning in verse 4. It says this is what happened. And when he had finished speaking, this is Jesus, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink and when simon peter saw it he fell down at jesus knees he fell on at jesus knees saying depart from me for i am a sinful man o lord and he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken and so also were james and john the sons of zebedee who were partners with simon And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed. This is how Peter's journey of following Jesus begins. It begins with him kneeling in a boat surrounded by fish, and then leaving everything to follow Jesus. I don't know if Andrew was there, but in my mind's eye, he is. Uh, And in my mind's eye, as they're, they're walking away from their boats to, to follow Christ, Andrew turns to his brother Peter and says, I told you. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but you can kind of maybe see them pushing each other as they walk down the beach like all brothers would do. But Peter needed to come to his own conclusions about who Christ was. He needed to, to see it for himself. That, that's the journey for all of us, right? This question of, of who is Jesus. We need to come to our own decision. We can't live by the the faith of another person your parents can't make uh, can't answer the question who is jesus for you Uh, your spouse can't have enough faith for both of you if we're going to come to the conclusion about jesus it's not our brother or our sister's faith or our friend's faith that can sweep us up into this belief in who christ was if we're going to come to the conclusion that about jesus about the person of christ if we're going to kneel before him, if we're going to call him Lord, it's going to be our own knees that need to bend, and it's going to be our own mouth that has to confess that Jesus is Lord. And in in Peter's quest to know who Jesus is, he kneels before Christ, and he calls him Lord. And then we watch as as Peter follows and he continues to grow in his understanding of, of who Jesus was, and more and more he comes to this understanding that he really is the Savior, he really is the Lord. We read in John 6 that Jesus taught this really difficult message such that a lot of Jesus' followers turned away and didn't follow him anymore. And at that moment, Jesus, which, what a surprising question, he turns to the disciples and he says, Do you guys want to leave too? Is it too hard for you? And Peter speaks up for all of the disciples and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. What have we believed? We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter knows who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. He is the Messiah. On another occasion, Peter answers another one of Jesus' difficult questions. The public opinion is is divided about Jesus. If you read the Gospels, that's very apparent. Some people don't know what to do with him, and some people believe everything that he says. And so Jesus asks the disciples, Who does everyone think that I am? Give me the options. What are people saying about me? And they come back and they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a prophet. And all of these people were dead. So so you're one of these people come back from the dead. That's what they thought about Jesus. Peter replies, and then then Jesus says, but but who do do you say that I am? I don't care what the crowd say. What What do you guys say? And Peter, again, is the first guy to speak of. And what does he say? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You're the Savior. You are the Son of God. So which Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father. How did Jesus come to this, or how did Peter come to this conclusion about Jesus? That he was the Christ, he is the Son of God. Well, it's rooted in Peter's experience. It's rooted in his life experience, what he saw, real life experience. He and the disciples had been with Jesus. They'd, they'd heard him preach. They heard the words that he said. They ate bread and fish that he had multiplied. They drank water that had been turned into wine. They witnessed him calm a storm with the word of his mouth. They saw him cast out demons for people. He healed people with the touch of his hand. He raised people from the dead. Soon after this, Peter, along with John and, and James, would see Jesus, in fact, reveal his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And having seen all of this, having having tasted the bread, having witnessed all of these things, Peter is convinced of what his brother told him way back when they first met Jesus. He is convinced that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He really is the Savior. He's the Son of God who has words of eternal life. Peter is ready to stake his entire life on the fact that Jesus is the promised seed of the Old Testament who will deal with sin and death. And yet, for, for, all, for all of this hands-on knowledge, all of this experiential knowledge, Jesus also tells Peter that his great confession, that this conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that that was actually supernaturally revealed to him. Do you remember what he said? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. <laughs> we get confused about faith sometimes, I think. But no one, no one including you or me, comes to the right answer about who Jesus is purely by our own logic and and reason and experiences. Faith, trust, it's not a blind thing, but it is a gift in the end. And eyes that see are given by God through the work of the Spirit. So we seek the truth, but ultimately the truth in the person of Jesus is seeking us. And he is the one that is that is opening our eyes. He is the one that is guiding us to know who he really is. You know, if, if we want to answer the question, what did Peter think about who Jesus was, it seems like we have our answer, right? He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. But neither he nor the disciples understood what, what was coming. All the suffering that was going to come. The death that was going to come. <clears throat> And so right after Peter's confession, in Mark 8, uh, we, we read this. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. You remember Peter's response to that? This revelation about future suffering that Mark tells us, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's amazing to me that as much as as Peter understood about who Jesus was, I mean, he is crystal clear on on who Christ is, yet he doesn't understand the place of of suffering and death in this plan of Jesus. Peter's rebuke is the whisper of Satan to Jesus, he says. It's a temptation to, to push away the cup of the Father. It's a temptation to walk away from the hour for which he'd been sent into the world. Jesus had to suffer. He had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. But you watch this. For Peter, this aversion to and this misunderstanding of suffering and death is a cord that leads straight to the the famous scene in the courtyard outside the place where Jesus is being tried. Peter had, had run away with the others there in the garden. You remember he had taken off. But now, He's here with John, and he's trying to stick by Jesus' side. He's trying to stay faithful. But the the spirit is willing, and the flesh is weak with Peter. Just as Jesus predicted to Peter, this is the man who had knelt in the boat and said, My Lord and my God, this is the guy who said, Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the guy who said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In this moment, he says, Jesus... I don't know who he is. I am not one of his followers. It's a massive fall when you understand who Peter was and all that he had said. Think about that. He denies Jesus. He denies even knowing him. When things got difficult, Peter crumbled. Suffering and, and pain and the cares and the worries of life, they like to choke out faith. That's what they do. We see things falling apart around us, and we assume that because things aren't going well, it must be a sign that what we believe is not true, that we're on the wrong path. Jesus isn't who he said he was. We get stuck in Holy Saturday. That's the day between Good Friday and Easter. We're stuck in the darkness, and we're just wondering what's going to happen, and we feel as if Jesus is dead, that he's not who he said he was. He's nowhere to be found. But then in the midst of that, just when we've lost all hope, people show up, and they say, we were just at the tomb and there's no one there, (laughs) his body is gone. I I love Peter's response to that, you see it in John 20. So think about Peter, think about this arc of him, his faith, his journey of up and down, and you get to this high point of saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then there's this slow... Downgrade to the point that he is denying Jesus at the moment of Jesus' death. And then we come to Easter morning. John 20. I want to read verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him." So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I love that picture. (laughs) I love Peter running. I love Peter getting outrun by John. (laughs) I love that John gets there first, but Peter's the guy that says, Well, you're staying under the doorway. I'm going in. And he sees it. I love the detail that John gives us here. He, he talks about the face cloth and he talks about what the linen cloth looked like. He's giving us all these details. They were there. They saw it. And I love that that Peter is 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 right there. Whatever Peter was thinking on Friday and Saturday, Sunday morning, he is he is ready to run to the to, tomb. Uh, he wanted to believe that this whole thing was a dream that Jesus truly hadn't died. But it wasn't a dream, was it? Jesus truly did die. (laughs) He was dead in the tomb. And his eyes aren't playing tricks on him now. The tomb is empty, and Jesus is no longer dead. But what did this all mean? It's interesting when we read this, you think that you read that, and, well, that's it. The story's over. But the disciples still are trying to figure out what this means. There's still a little doubting about it. And so we see later on in John 20 that Jesus appears to them on that first Easter. But even that doesn't seem to seal it for Peter. He's not sure what to do with this. And so in John 21, we find Peter right back where he was when Jesus first seemed to capture his focus. Remember where he's at? He's back in a boat. <laughs> back in this on the Sea of Galilee. But it doesn't seem that he is disbelieving Jesus. I don't think that's what causes him to go back into his old way of life. I think he's just so aware of his weakness that he doesn't know what to do. If Jesus is alive, but I denied him, and I didn't get this whole thing, what am I supposed to do? And so Jesus again meets Peter on the shore after a night of fruitless fishing. It's the same way that Jesus first sort of revealed himself to Peter. He does it again. They don't know it's Jesus yet, though. This is in John 21, 4 to 8. It says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. If the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they did. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Again, Peter's the star in this passage to me. I don't know why he threw himself in the water. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. Was it love? Is, is he overcome with that same feeling that he had the first time that they pulled all those fish into the boat? Remember what he said then? He says, Get away from me. I'm a sinful man, Lord. And he bows at Jesus' feet. But when Peter throws himself into the water, he doesn't swim away from Jesus, <laughs> he swims to him. I think he felt the shame of those days previously. I think he saw his sin, but I think he also knew that he would, if he came to Jesus, he swam to shore and he knelt before Jesus again in repentance that he would be forgiven. I think he was hoping that. You know, maybe that hundred yard swim was sort of just the fruit of his repentance. It was this sign that he still loved Christ, that he was going to forsake everything one more time. I mean, he did. if he's in charge of this boat, I don't know what would happen if you didn't have your boat anchored and you just jumped into the water. It's not going to just slowly float into shore. You're losing it. Again, I think Peter's forsaking everything once more as it were, to come to Christ. And Jesus does forgive him. You can read the rest of that story in in John 21 this afternoon. But for now, fast forward 40-ish days. Jesus had appeared to the disciples and many others, and now he ascends back to the right hand of the Father, and he leaves his followers to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. And when the Spirit comes and acts to it comes as a rushing wind and as tongues of fire and the followers of Jesus begin to speak in different tongues and the city is completely confused about what's going on and again, Peter's the guy that steps forward and this time he steps forward and he's bold and he's clear and at one point in that sermon in Acts 2 uh, verses 22 through 24, this is what he says Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I love that because Peter Peter knew all of those things, and that's why he was trusting Jesus in part. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Remember, Jesus had rebuked Peter for that. I mean, Peter had rebuked Jesus for saying that this was going to happen, and now he says, no, that was the plan. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then a little later, Peter concludes the sermon in verse 36 with these words, Let all the house of Israel know, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter has already said that, hasn't he? He's already said that Jesus is Lord and Christ. He said it so many different times. But in the raising of Jesus from the dead, God proclaims this reality that Jesus is Lord and Christ in the most definitive and final way possible. And Peter never looks back after this. The, the resurrection becomes the final word on the question of who Jesus is. It validates everything else he said and everything else that he did. His words were authoritative. His miracles were true because he is Lord in Christ, and we know that he's Lord in Christ because he was raised from the dead. His death on the cross was not defeat, but it was the way that God saved the world through the death of his innocent son, dying for our sins so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, and we know that that's what that death did because Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection reveals that that death was triumphant. The resurrection... Reveals that Jesus is worth living and dying for. Because He alone has defeated death. He is able to offer us the solid hope of a future resurrection. That this is not all there is. I'm not sure where you're at on your journey of answering this question who is Jesus? You know, maybe you're way at the beginning. You've got friends that are introducing you to Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've come to see who he is for the first time. Maybe. You believe, but you're you're struggling with that unbelief. You're you affirm, yes, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, but you just sort of feel stuck in the silence of Saturday. Wherever you are, we can look to the cross and we can see the love of God displayed for our sin. And then we can turn and we can look to the empty tomb and we can say Jesus truly is Lord in Christ. As Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, Well, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But he did raise from the dead. He is risen. And therefore we have the greatest cause for hope and rejoicing in the world. I want to read a poem that I encountered for the first time this week by John Updike. This is a, as all poetry, some of it is a little enigmatic, but I still enjoy it the mystery of it. Poetry seems the best way to express something as mysterious as the resurrection, so let me read this for you. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered, out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The door of the tomb, I think. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom, Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed crushed by remonstrance. What he's saying there is that Jesus truly rose from the dead. It's not a metaphor. It's not some spiritual truth, but that he actually, in his body, came back and Peter saw it. And when Peter saw it, it cemented everything else. All of that up and down and even in the up and down that would come later in Peter's life, he had the rock solid truth that Jesus truly rose from the dead. And if we have eyes to see the wonder of Jesus' resurrection, then we will say with Peter that we know for certain, we know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. I pray that we all have eyes to see that this morning, but even more than that, that we have hearts that rejoice in it